Uh, this is one of, in my opinion, one of the most glorious uh, doctrines of Scripture, and it is uh, assurance of faith and salvation. So, uh, we're going to be in 1 John 5, 1 John 5 and verse 9 is where we're going to start. This is more topical, so we're going to skip around a little bit, um, but we're going to start in 1 John 9. If nothing else throughout this process, I learned a very valuable lesson to always have a backup sermon written. Um, so I will do that next time. First John chapter 5 and verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness about his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness which God has borne witness about his Son. And the witness is this, that God gave us eternal life, and that this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have that life. These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray over the text. Our Father and our God, we thank you and rejoice in you most of all for our adoption as sons into your kingdom, that you have made us heirs to an eternal inheritance and reward that we cannot even begin to imagine. We ask now that you give your children conviction and understanding as we talk about the things of sacred theology, that you would seal it on our hearts and our minds such that we become better servants of you. And we ask all these things not on our own authority, but on the basis of your son's shed blood. And amen. So like I said, we're going to put a pause on 2 Corinthians uh, while Pastor Nick is sick, and we're going to talk about two doctrines that lie right at the heart of the Christian life. Those two doctrines are saving faith and the assurance of salvation. Uh, this was, by the way, put together as part of a Sunday school class on reformational theology. So some of this is going to have um, themes that you'll see recurring. Um, so uh, about the Reformation, we know that uh, most fights that occurred in that uh, 15th and 16th century battle over pure doctrine were about the Roman Catholic Church's distortion of things like justification, like how we're made right before God, whether it's by uh, faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ alone, or whether we have to in some way merit acceptance before God. And that, of course, troubled many consciences, because for those who know their sinfulness, for those who know their depravity, you also know that you're not worthy of God's acceptance and forgiveness. And so, Someone like Martin Luther, who came along knowing he was not worthy of God's acceptance and forgiveness, had a very troubled conscience. He knew, and he sat in confessional booths for hours and hours a day to the point where priests would try to send him out and drive him off because he knew that he had not just fringes of sin or just a little, uh, he wasn't just a little marred by sin, but that his whole person, that his whole being was subsumed by this sin, was controlled by this sin, that even if he's not sinning outwardly and openly, even if he's not having affairs or uh, doing whatever uh, the outward acts of this world are, that even inwardly he has sins and uh, desires toward evil things that he's corrupted all the way down to the core. So he sat in these confessional booths for hours a day, He had a very sensitive conscience because he knew the holiness of God. That's something we have forgotten as the American church, is the holiness of God. But that's something Martin Luther, even before he was converted, knew. Because he read the scriptures. He saw them. He saw all about the righteousness of God that was revealed in the gospel. And so, from his perspective as a monk who was trying to earn favor before God, not by works alone, he did believe in the grace of God, but that he had to do his part and help along the process, from his perspective, he didn't have any solid reason to believe God would accept him given his sin. Why would a holy God accept someone like me, someone so depraved as me? 
From his perspective, he knew that God could never forgive the ungodly unless he also knew the message of the gospel, which had been obscured and marred by the Roman Catholic Church. So uh, he knew the character of himself. He knew he was rebellious, weak in faith, imperfect, impure, and fallen. He knew that he was a son of Adam, but it wasn't until he truly understood the nature of the gospel, this message of a divine exchange of my sins to Christ and his righteousness to me. It's not until he understood that that we start to see Luther swell with assurance and peace. Uh, If you've ever read anything that Luther's written, I haven't read much, but Man, he was a firebrand. <laughs> he was a fiery guy. He would insult people, uh, that w- and it would make us uncomfortable as 21st century Christians, the, the manner in which he would insult people, his theological opponents. And it's because he had a zeal for the gospel. Now, like his rhetoric or not, we're not going to comment on that today. He had a zeal for the gospel because he had understood, finally, what had been so obscured in his day that he could, and you could, have peace with a holy God. And he thought it terrible that people were hiding that from the people, that people were hiding that from the people of God by uh, taking the scriptures away. People in the 16th century weren't allowed to read the scriptures by themselves in their homes. He wouldn't be wealthy enough to do it anyway, but that wasn't allowed. So, when a monk says, you have to do a, pil- a pilgrimage, you have a monk who is convinced uh, for forgiveness of sins. Uh, if you don't understand, sorry, this was in the context of a class where we had been talking about this. And the Roman Catholic system, they believe that you've fallen from, uh, you're, you're baptized, uh, original sin is completely washed away, And then at that point, you can start to accrue to yourselves mortal or venial sins that need to be washed off or taken away first by the penance uh, system where you go before a priest, you confess your sins before him, and then he, in turn, gives you something you must do. Uh, Something like say five Hail Marys or do a pilgrimage uh, to a faraway land. Go uh, kiss these relics. And if you do that, then the priest would then declare to you that you have forgiveness of sins. So you have a monk who, when a priest says you have to do a pilgrimage, You have a monk who was so convinced of the scriptures that he was able to say, no, he's lying. He would say that in front of congregations, Luther would. And that upset, obviously, the Roman Catholic Church. And apart from any work or merit, apart from penances and indulgences, Luther said, you can be made right with a holy God and you can know that you are right with a holy God. And this rising and developing doctrine of assurance so infuriated the Roman Catholic Church, it so frustrated their system of theology, that you have the most, probably the most famous Roman Catholic apologist at the time who said this, and I quote, The greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is the doctrine of assurance. Because they thought, of course, that it bred uh, a licentious life. That if you knew you were right before God, if you actually knew that you had salvation as part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you could go out and live any way you pleased. Now, of course, that's not what Luther or the Reformed were teaching. But nevertheless, Robert Bellarmine said in the 16th century, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is this doctrine of assurance. And of course, I don't believe this is a heresy of Protestantism. I think it's the chief glory that Protestant uh, theology brought to the life of everyday believers. To people like you and me, we're not extraordinary in any way, but we even as common as we are, can have an assurance that the Holy God has come to save sinners. You can know for certain that you belong to Christ, such that you don't have to shrink away from him when he comes. So, let's get on to the topic at hand, assurance. I must say, uh, talking about assurance, especially in these contexts, can be fairly dangerous. um, Because if one does it wrongly, your one sermon could divide half the room into complacency and the other half into despair. (laughs) We have people preaching assurance all the time, Uh, And it's not always done rightly. So in order for us to get our bearings, let's talk about two ditches we can fall into when we talk about assurance. 
And here they are if you want to write them down. The two ditches of preaching and teaching about assurance are, first, offering it to those to whom it does not belong. Do we understand that? We do not want to offer assurance to those to whom it does not belong. There are some who are walking in this world, we'll talk about this in a second, who do not need assurance because they do not have salvation. And so if you go up and start freely offering out assurance like it's candy to the congregation, um, that can be a very dangerous thing to do. And second, the second ditch of preaching and teaching about assurance is withholding it from those to whom it truly belongs. Those are the two ditches. Offering it to those to whom it does not belong and withholding it from those to whom it truly does belong. And there are great resources out there on this topic. There are great sermons and podcasts and lectures and books all about assurance. But a lot of them fall into one of those two ditches. For the first ditch, you have a lot of preachers and teachers who are willing to take a verbal profession of faith as tantamount, as absolutely tantamount, when those same people who are professing to walk with Christ sin without any remorse or guilt. And still, pastors and teachers are willing to look their people in the faces who they know are sinning grievously, who they know are sinning without repentance, and still assure them of their salvation, that they are still children of God. Who certainly, despite profession, look exactly like the people of this world. They talk the talk, they uh, look like the world, though, and they act like the world, they behave like the world, they listen to the world's music, they do all the things of the world, and yet, they have this profession of Christ And we, because we're trying to be humble and charitable, go to them and take them at their profession, when in light of their profession, they're in all these grievous sins for which they're not repenting. And so we have many, many churches in America with congregations littered with pagans who don't love Christ or his word, and yet pastors and teachers who will speak to those congregations as if the need of the moment was a pep talk on how much God loves them and how God accepts them just as they are. There's a sense in which that's true. God accepts you like you are when you come to him in faith. But he does not keep you there. Does that make sense? When you come to faith in Christ, he does accept you as you are. You're a wretched sinner, and if you don't know that, you're not coming to Christ for salvation. But once you get there, Christ transforms you. We also believe in a doctrine called regeneration, or the new birth, right? We believe in being born again, that you become a new creature in Christ at the moment of faith, such that God does not leave you where you are in your sin and misery, but he changes your heart and gives you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. It changes your affections, your desires, such that you no longer desire the things of the world, and now you desire the things of Christ. And if that hasn't taken place, if you can tell outwardly, or if you can judge pretty pretty well outwardly that that hasn't taken place in someone's life, you do not need to offer them assurance. False assurance is dangerous. It's deadly. To give assurance to those people who are living dissolute lives, unrepentant dissolute lives, would be disastrous. It would provoke them to complacency. It would provoke them to further sin into lukewarmness. They don't feel like they need to change. If every, every, every week you stand up there and all you say is God loves you just as you are, God loves you just as you are, he loves you, you're a perfect creature of him, you're made as a perfect little masterpiece of the Savior. If that's all you ever hear, if that's all you ever hear as someone who is uh, down in sin and complacency, then that's terrible for you. You're never going to be provoked to holiness. You're never going to be provoked to do the things of the Lord. But there are also those teachers and preachers on the other side of the fence usually Baptists, I admit, to my, much to my chagrin, uh, who preach like they're the only man standing on earth who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. <laughs> We've probably all heard those preachers. Like they're the lone survivor in the great apostasy, and then halfway preaching through their message, they realize, maybe I'm not in this as well. <laughs> they start to convince themselves of their own uh, lack of the salvation. So in other words, sometimes we're too reluctant to give assurance to saints who desperately need it. 
to saints who are really godly men and women who love the Lord and his word, but don't see themselves as worthy enough to be children of God. You have in uh, some reform circles even, again, this class was on reform theology, uh, where communion Sundays, communion, the elements are passed about, and no one takes them. People sit there. They just sit there looking at it because they don't see themselves as worthy enough to come to the table. The table is not, uh, the requirement for the table, table is not perfection, right? We understand that. It is repentance. It is living a life worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. But these people who really love the Lord, who are really holy people, uh, if you put them next to me, I would be in, you know, in their shadows, pretty much, when it comes to holiness. And yet they won't take the supper because they don't see themselves as worthy enough. They're lacking assurance. They're lacking uh, an assurance because they don't think God could love sinners like them. It's those people who are broken and contrite over their sins that need to be taught and encouraged in the assurance of faith. So with that bit of context in mind, let's go over, over a couple things about the doctrine of assurance. I said a moment ago that many Roman Catholics, for example, deny that you can even have assurance. It's not even possible, they say. That it's, even something, it's not even something that God offers to us. So over and against that idea, the first thing we want to note about assurance is that it's actually attainable. Um, assurance is actually attainable. If we look back at our text in 1 John, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, 1 John 5, 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is actually knowable for the believer. God says it is. Not only that, there are portions of Scripture, one of them being 1 John, the entire book of 1 John, that are written precisely so that we can know that we belong to Christ. So we're not claiming that we can climb up and peer into the mind of God and figure out whether we're saved by some strange philosophical contemplation. We're saying God intends to communicate assurance to his people through the scriptures, such that if we read the scriptures by the power of the Spirit, we can gain assurance. We can. We're saying that God, as a good and gracious father, actually wants his children to know that we belong to him. Does that make sense? God, as a good and gracious father, actually wants his children to know that we belong to him. A good father wouldn't withhold his parentage from his children. Does that make sense? And if God wants to, he can. That's, I think, what Roman Catholics are missing. They're acting like this is some impossible feat. And when a scripture like 1 John uh, 5.13 just says we can do it, we should believe God, right? No matter how impossible they think it may be. If God wants to communicate assurance to his people, he certainly can. And he's given us the means to do that. And we'll talk about that in a second. We read about this ability to have assurance also in Romans 8. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, Paul writes this, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Let's read that again. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. God has given us both his word in 1 John and his spirit to, the children, uh, uh, to his children in order that we might know that we are the children of God. This isn't some strange whispering in your ear that you're a child of God, by the way. It's a conviction and assurance that the Spirit works within your soul that assures you in your innermost being, yes, I am a child of God. So over and against that Roman Catholic doctrine, I just have to say that the plain testimony of Scripture seems to disagree with them, right? There's not much else I can say than that. The Bible seems to say we really can come to know whether we are children of God and whether we belong to Him. So now to talk uh, about actually growing in assurance as a believer, because that's kind of what we all want to know about, I'm sure. I want to say first, you shouldn't think of assurance as a light switch that you can just turn off and on. Does that make sense? Uh, sometimes Christians, even true Christians, lose assurance 
but it's not as if you're either looking to turn the light switch of assurance on or turn it off. It's more like God, at the moment of saving you, at the moment of saving faith, has given you the grains of assurance that you have to foster and grow and nurture such that as you grow in your Christian walk, you become more and more assured if you're doing things right. It's more like a plant, right, that we're watering and tending to and caring for than a light switch that you're turning on and off. I want to read this um, at the Westminster Confession on assurance. In chapter 18 of the Westminster Confession, they speak about assurance in this way. They say, This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. What they're saying there is, you might have to struggle a lot before you reach any degree of assurance in your Christian walk, even if you are a true believer. They go on to say this, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation in diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence of preserving it. They're saying if you don't preserve your assurance of faith, if you don't actually nurture your your assurance of faith as if it were a plant rather than a light switch, then it can uh, can diminish. It can actually go away. And the answer to that is not to uh, despair, but to actually do those things which the Word of God says to work that assurance back into your own heart. So think about it like that, like a plant, not like a light switch. And with that in mind, we'll go on uh, to the Two keys to assurance. These are the two keys to know about if you want assurance of your salvation. That first, the first thing you need to look for if you're looking for assurance is not within yourself. Do not look first in yourself and stare at your own navel and judge yourself as unworthy of the grace of God. That's not the first place you look. We're going to look there later. (laughs) That's not the first place you look. You first look to the objective faith outside of yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. If you turn inward and only look at your sins before and more often than you look outside of yourself into Christ, you will despair, especially if you actually have a knowledge of your own sin. If you know you're a sinner, when you look inside of you, what are you going to see? You're going to see sin, yeah. Now, we should look at our sin. We're going to talk about that in a second, in examination. All I'm offering to us here is that we first look at the promises of God, that we first look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what are the promises that God has given us in the gospel? How about this one? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a promise of God to you. Look to that promise. And it will be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise to you. So look to the promise. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Assuredly. So look to that promise. It's a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, amongst whom I am the foremost, Paul says. So do you believe these promises? Do you trust the promises? That's where the assurance lies. It does not lie within you. You can't work it up in yourself, but by relying on the promises of God, the Holy Spirit works it in you. Do you have faith in the promises? Well, let's ask ourselves, what is faith? Do we have faith in these promises? What is faith? Classically, the Reformed have broken down faith into three categories. First, you have notitia, or knowledge. You have to actually have knowledge about the facts of the thing. Do you know the gospel? The people who don't have this first aspect will be those who are living in, you know, uh, the jungles and, you know, wherever people don't know about Christ. Um, And they don't actually have the facts of the knowledge about the gospel. They don't know who Jesus is. They've never heard of him. They've never heard about what he's done. They've never heard about his death. So first, of course, to have faith, you actually need to have a knowledge of what you're having faith in. And then, of course, you need to have assent. You actually have to say, and that knowledge is true. 
about this group, we could look to, for example, uh, I'm sure many atheists or uh, people of other religions that you have witnessed to yourself, perhaps they're in your family, perhaps they're people that you know, and you've told them the gospel. They know it. You've told them over and over the gospel, probably, such that they can probably tell you the gospel better than most Christians because you've shared it with them and shared it with them and shared it with them. Their problem is not that they don't know, it's that they don't agree. It's that they don't assent to the knowledge of the gospel. So that's the second aspect of faith. Do you have the knowledge of the facts, and do you acknowledge that the facts are true? Does that make sense? And the last and probably most important is what the Reformers called fiducia, or trust, to rest in those promises. You actually have to have a knowledge about the promises, then you have to agree that they're true, assent that they're true, and then you actually have to trust that those are yours by faith. Does that make sense? If you only have the first two, if you only have knowledge and assent, then you're just as well off as the demons. <laughs> the demons also know that it's true, and they also assent that it's true. They know the facts of the gospel better than most. But unless you have a trust, a reliance on the promises, that they are your own, you do not have faith in the promises. So we're asking ourselves, do we have faith in those promises? Not do you know they're true. There are a lot of people in the Christian church who know the promises are true. They've heard it from their youth. They believe it. They assent to it. They know the promises are true, and yet they have no faith in the promises because they're missing this third aspect of trust and reliance that those promises are true for them, for you, for me. You actually need to grab those promises by faith. So, first, we're looking outside of ourselves to the work of another, outside of ourselves and to the work of Jesus Christ. If you curl in first, you are going to despair, I promise you. If you look inward first, you're never going to have assurance of faith. But first we look outward into the promises of God. We acknowledge that they are true. And now we must perceive them and apprehend them by faith. We actually have to rely on the promises that they are true for me and for you. And springing out of that trust, springing out of that faith, is where we get into the evidences of salvation. That if, like we said before, someone comes to faith in Christ, Christ doesn't leave them as they are. Evidence is, in effect, God helping you to answer the question of whether you have faith in the promises. So you ask yourself, do I believe in God? Do I have and believe in these promises of God? And the evidence is going to be your teacher to help you answer yes or no. Does that make sense? You're asking yourself, do I believe in these promises? That's what assurance is about, or, uh, or trying to grow in assurance and examination of yourself is about. You're asking yourself whether I have thrown myself upon the mercies of Christ whether I've actually had faith in the promises of God, and the evidences are what help you answer whether you have faith in Christ. So the inward introspection actually has a place in this. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it does not have primary place. It does not have the primary importance. The first thing is that you look outside of yourself to the place in which the assurance lies, which is in the person of Jesus Christ. But the evidences of your salvation are going to help you answer whether you actually trust in those promises. So, uh, here are some evidences of salvation that the scripture gives us. First John 2, 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. If you walk around saying you are in the light, if you walk around going to church, living as a Christian, and you hate your brother, you are in darkness even till now. John also says in 1 John two fifteen, Do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen to that again. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's not talking about dirt and trees and grass. He goes on to explain, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, that's not from the Father, but from the world. If God is your Father, he gives you your affections. 
And if your affections are springing up from the world, then you're of the world. And if they're springing up from God or coming down from God, then you're of your Father. Let's read that one more time. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. He goes on in 1 John 3. By the way, do you ever, reading 1 John, just feel like you're getting smacked in the face over and over? 1 John chapter 3. By this, the, oh, excuse me, 1 John 3.10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Here's how you know, he's saying. The children of God versus the children of, devil, of the devil. Here's how you know. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God, as well as the one who does not love his brother. He gives you two evidences there. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God, as well as the one who does not love his brother. Again, if you walk about breaking the commandments without remorse, don't believe you're a Christian. You understand that that person, even if they be saved, let's say that, we all believe in, uh, in periods of backsliding. We believe that you can grow in your faithfulness toward Christ and regress. There are periods of my life that I hate to think about because of my sinfulness. Even in those moments, when I was in my sin and misery, should I have assurance? Should I have assurance, even if I'm a believer? No, of course I shouldn't have assurance. If I'm ongoing in sin, if I'm unrepentant of sin, if I'm loving the things of the world rather than the things of the Lord, even if I was saved at that moment in backsliding, I should have no assurance of my salvation. I should flee to Christ for mercy. That's the answer. If I want assurance at that point, what I have to do is forsake my sins and follow Christ. John goes on, 1 John 3.14. This, by the way, is my favorite one. As evidence of salvation, this is my favorite one. We know, 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. How often do we hear this one preached on? Because we love the brothers. Do you remember, perhaps, before you were a Christian, how you viewed Christians? How you viewed them as probably snobby and uptight? What changed? What changed? You became one of them, right? They're your people now. Um, you're likewise not being uptight. Um, no, you, you have become part of the family of God, and that's what the natural affections of the family are, is to love your brothers. This isn't just talking about some uh, general care for them or some general regard for their life, but a true and deep agape love for your brothers. Do you have that? So what the Puritans would do, if they're looking at this, uh, this doctrine of assurance, as they would, because, of course, they're Puritans, they would say, you should put it into a syllogism so you can know that it's true. You take one of these truths of Scripture, one of these evidences, and you stick it in a syllogism, and you see how you're doing. 1 John 5, 3, for example, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So, first premise, those who keep God's commandments, not perfectly, mind you, 1 John also talks about the fact that we sin and flee to our advocate, but those who keep God's commandments and do not find them to be a burden, that is, an oppressive weight which weighs them down, which seems harsh and overbearing, those who keep God's commandments and don't find them to be a burden, are truly children of God. I'll say it again. Those who keep God's commandments and don't find them to be a burden are true children of God. First premise. Then I say, when I examine my life, I find it to be true that I keep the commandments of God. Not perfectly. We already went over that. But I have a track record of keeping the commandments of God. I keep the commandments of God, and I find liberty in them. I love them. I know and trust that they are good for my soul, and they are not a burden. So, when I examine my life, I keep the commandments of God and find liberty in them, and they are not burdensome. That's your second premise. So, major premise, those who keep God's commandments 
and don't find them to be, to be a burden, those are true children of God. Then, second premise, I keep the commandments, and I find liberty in them. Therefore, here's the conclusion, I must, be, I must conclude that I'm a child of God. That's where your assurance lies. That's how you use the evidences. It's not that you're looking inward for your assurance. You're looking to what Christ has done in you, whether Christ has actually wrought you uh, or wrought holiness in you by the power of the Spirit. So those who keep God's commandments do not find them to be a burden are true children of God. And you look at yourself, you examine your life by the power of the Spirit, you ask yourself honestly, you ask yourself without uh, reservation or fear. This is one of the most dreadful things to find out that you actually aren't a believer. It would be. So you ask yourself honestly, because this is the most important thing you could possibly ask yourself, and you examine yourself by this. Do I keep the commandments of God? Not perfectly, again. Do I find them to be a burden? Do I hate them? Do I resent them? Do I resent the commandments of God as if I could find liberty outside of them, but I'm just chained down by them? If that's you, you should not conclude that you're a beloved child of God. As severe as that sounds, you should not conclude that, and you should worry for your soul. That's a harsh thing to say, but it's true, and John's telling us. And I can't say anything but what John's telling us here. If you find that you don't match up with the standards of, again, not perfectly, but what God puts forward as true tests of believers, you should fear for your life. You really should. You should fear that fire which is waiting to consume the adversaries, because that might be one of you. That might be me. So we need to have an honest and sober examination of our lives. Let's take another one of those. Again, my favorite one here uh, is the love for the brethren. So let's go back to that. This is in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death to life because we love the brothers. So major premise. Those who love the brothers have passed from death to life. Then you take a sober examination of yourself and you ask yourself, do I actually love the brothers? Or am I just really eager to get out of here after church is over? Do I just hate talking to them? Do I hate being around them? Do they annoy the mess out of me? Uh, Or do I love them? Do I have an affection for my brothers and sisters in Christ? You take a sober examination of yourself. So, we know that those who have passed out of death to life love the brothers. Then you look at your own life and you say, do I love the brothers? I love the brothers, therefore I must conclude that I'm a child of God. I must conclude that. That's what the scriptures would have me conclude. Or oppositely, conversely, I do not love the brothers. And therefore, I should not believe. I should have no reason to conclude that I am a child of God. And then you flee to Christ for mercy. That's the only place you're going to find it. So, a harsh message, perhaps. Um, But a lot of people are looking for assurance in all the wrong places. We see that all the time. Uh, Looking for it in experience. Uh, I know some who have tried to look for it in trying to speak in tongues, for example. That's not the judge of whether you're a believer. It's whether you can manifest some supernatural power by by the Holy Spirit who gives gifts to whom he wills, by the way. You can't muster that up on your own. That's not the evidence. It's not some warm, gooey feeling in your heart. Do I feel warm toward Jesus? You should love him, but that love isn't just some warm, gooey feeling. It's a love that issues forth in obedience. So you actually have markers that you can test yourself by. Love issues forth in obedience. We read that in 1 John. And so if you are not obedient, be terrified for your soul. Be absolutely afraid for your soul. Not if you're not perfect. We talked about that a second ago. But when you do sin, are you fleeing to Christ for mercy? When you do sin, are you repenting? Or is repentance something that you haven't done for three and a half years? Is that something you haven't even tried to do? Are you communing with God? Do you love him? If you don't, feel fear for your soul. But again, I don't want you to believe that you have to do these things perfectly. This is, again, the kind of the hard road you have to 
you have to travel. Because a lot of people, when they hear this, they say, oh, I don't have to do it perfectly, so I'm all right. Even though they haven't, perhaps, repented in three and a half years. Even though they don't love the brothers. Even though they don't walk in the obedience of God. And I don't want you to fall into that ditch. If that is you, if you take a sober examination of your life and you realize that you are lacking, you might be a believer, perhaps. But you should have no assurance of your salvation. And that should terrify you. The last thing I want to point out is that one of the greatest terrors if you're a professing, is if you're a professing Christian in the church who is harboring unrepentant and unconfessed sin. If that's you, if you're harboring unconfessed and unrepentant sin, then you, sh- you certainly should not have any assurance. But the good thing, the gracious thing about God and the gospel is that he promises you if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So why wouldn't you confess? Why would you not confess your sins when Christ offers you mercy if you confess? That'd be the most foolish thing you could possibly do. And there are many who walk around with unconfessed sins because they're worried of the judgment of others. They're worried about the brothers. We understand. (laughs) We were just where you were. If that's you, we all had to confess our sins. Everybody knows our dirty laundry here. But we've come forward and confessed our sins. And for that reason, Christ has forgiven us. So it's an offer. Please come to Christ for forgiveness. If you're you're walking in secret sins, please come to Christ for forgiveness. The worship team can start making them up here. Um, What we should do is Seek to, uh, seek to live humble and re- repentant lives as children of God. That's the only place you're going to find assurance, is by living humble and repentant lives as children of God who take sober examination of themselves, not first, but first looking to the promises of God, and then at themselves to see whether God has actually wrought faith in your life. And if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with assurance, we've got four pastors here who would love to talk to you. <laughs> we've got pastors here that care for the souls of their sheep, and this is not something to be trifled with. It's really not. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the grace of assurance. I thank you, Lord, that you have given your children knowledge of their parentage. I thank you, Lord, that you are a good father to your children, and that when we ask things in your name, you're, uh, you're willing and able to answer our prayers. So we ask you as a congregation now to purify us, Lord, of any unconfessed and unrepentant sin, that all might receive and grow in the knowledge of assurance here. That we might all receive and grow in the knowledge that we are your children, that you love us, and that you want us to walk in purity of life before you. We ask it in your name. Amen.